So, um, good evening, everyone. Um, Good to see so many people with an interest in listening to the Dhamma. And um, I'm very interested to to hear some of you and and to have some discussions, uh, questions and answers or whatever at the end of the talk. So I'll try not to talk too long so that we can run out of steam. Um, <clears throat> at the age of <clears throat> of seventeen, um, I took what I I told my parents somewhat disingenuously was uh, to be a gap year for university. Um, and one year became two and I never went. So I went to India. I hitchhiked most of the way to India. I've been fascinated with India and Indian culture and Indian religion as far as I can remember. And I, I particularly remember one morning, it was. Uh, it's been January 1976, and I was standing by the side of a road somewhere. A gentleman came up to me and imagined he was a civil servant. And he said, Good morning. Said, what is your country? So I said, England. And uh, what is your concept of Godhead? I knew, I just thought that was so wonderful. Someone who just, you'd never met before, would just come up to you in the middle of the road and ask what my concept of Godhead was. And I said, of course, being, you know, just 18 years old, so he didn't have a particularly sophisticated concept of ultimate reality. And it seemed to me that, uh, he was more interested in telling me his concept than of listening to mine anyway. So I, so I listened to him. Oh, this is what I love about India, where the spiritual and the mundane um, exist in a kind of seamless relationship. And uh, fast forward 30-something years, and just before... Uh, leaving Thailand, I was um, in the house of an old lady who was um, to be accompanying me on this trip. She was unfortunately ill. She was watching television, <coughs> so um, cable television, and I wanted to um, skip forward um, to see whether the typhoon in Japan was going to hinder our travel plans. And so I was uh, channel surfing. And I stopped upon this American channel. And it was a young lad of, I don't know, 17, 18, or maybe, or something. And it seemed to be, he seemed to have been successful in some kind of a competition, talent show or something. And the, the interviewer said, how do you feel? 
And he said, wow, I'm, I don't know. I'm just having trouble processing reality right now. And I was so impressed by that. I just couldn't imagine how I would translate that into Thai or how, or imagine any uh, young Thai person of my acquaintance who would, um, in a, in a moment of uh, excitement, would express itself as having difficulty processing reality. So my conclusion is that um, with the economic um, progress of India, the, um, the rising of India as an economic power, I think that the spiritual side seems to be waning somewhat. But the, perhaps the, um, the bright side, the line, silver lining of the cloud of American economic decline might be uh, teenagers who worry about processing reality. And um, so an interest in, in life, um, this, this for me is uh, part of Buddhism. Um, Buddhism is not a teaching which wants to give you cut and dried answers and telling you, you should believe this and you shouldn't believe that, um, but is encouraging you to ask questions about life and not just the details of life or the um, worldly projects um, in which we get so easily engrossed and enmeshed, enmeshed but in the very, um, our, our very humanity and uh, what we're doing with our lives. It's often we're just um, so busy um, going from this to the next thing and the next thing to the next thing um, that we never really stop and ask ourselves, well, why? What for? And this is why it's so important um, to have a daily meditation period. It's um, very appreciative of the invitation um, to all of you just now. I encourage you to take um, take the present up on that because um, irrespective of any <clears throat> spiritual um, progress that you might make as you would usually conceive of it, just a very effort to make some time to stop and to be with yourself as a human being rather than yourself as a student or as a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a son or a daughter or a husband or a wife or whatever. Um, having a time which you put aside every day, um, it's a time just to relinquish for a moment all your conventional identities and worries and anxieties. And when you do that, um, I think that you'll, you'll observe that as your mind calms down even a little, then things start to bubble up. Say, yeah, this is really not a wise thing that I'm doing right now. Or I really should spend more time doing this and doing that. And those, <clears throat> those kinds of thoughts, you know, are not to be dismissed as an obstacle to meditation, 
um, to say, but there are also um, indications that we're having a little bit more communication with ourselves. There's the exponential growth of our capacity um, to communicate with others um, engulfs us. Then there, there seems to be a corresponding lack of communication with ourselves. And there are so many um, ways now in which we can distract ourselves. And in our lives, I think the, the dilemma or the conflict between something which is quite obviously noble and that which is ignoble, that which is good, and that which is bad, um, occur relatively infrequently. But what um, does bedevil us is the draw towards the superficial and the um, trivial. And so we've seen huge trivialization of our lives, I think, um, over the past years. And how much of what we say, what we text, what we email is really conducive to our long-lasting benefit and happiness. The Buddhist teachings are encapsulated in a very uh, simple phrase which features in most Buddhist ceremonies. And the phrase is, uh, for the welfare, for the happiness and for the welfare of all sentient beings for all of time. Or uh, we could say sustainably, for the sustainable happiness and welfare of self and others. Mm. Buddha is um, pointing to the need for us to give attention both to the outer and the inner, uh, but also to be creating happiness and welfare of others um, in the families, the community, in the society in which we live. The transmission of Buddhism to the West has been one in which the meditation techniques uh, have been emphasized and quite understandably so in that skillful means of training, educating, cultivating the mind um, have been uh, pretty well discarded in Western culture um, or completely neglected, particularly in the Protestant culture. So it's quite natural, and I myself and many of my fellow monks uh, came to Buddhism through its interest in training the mind. But to consider Buddhism as a solipsistic, uh, internal, individual 
project is to seriously misrepresent the Buddha's teachings. In fact, um, at the time of the Buddha himself, the word which uh, was most commonly used to refer to this teaching was the Dhamma Vinaya. So the Dhamma is all those teachings um, focused on inner development. And the Vinaya is, uh, consists of all those teachings intended to create the optimum environment for the practice of Dhamma. So uh, many of you may have heard the word uh, Vinaya or Vinaya and perhaps assume that it's a term restricted to the monastic discipline. Um, this is not the case, but the Buddha established the monastic order specifically to provide the most conducive environment for the study practice of the teachings and the and the propagation of them. But nevertheless, he, uh, in what ways he could, given that he was um, living in a non-Buddhist culture and one in which there were um, some shared values, but many conflicting values, um, he uh, laid down um, precepts or suggested precepts and um, conventions in the world in such a way as to um, enhance or support practice of Dhamma as much as possible. So the Buddhist um, teachings, the Eightfold Path, are abbreviated or summarized called the Threefold Training of Sila Samadhi Anya. And this um, word, the Pali word, is Sikha, which um, can be translated as Sikha, but uh, as, as training. But also uh, it's uh, a wider meaning is indicated by the fact that in, in Thailand, in Thai language, um, the word for education is suksa, uh, which is directly derived from this word. So we can refer to the Buddha's training as essentially a system of education, an education of conduct, an education of the heart, an education of our understanding of life. And this is not a step-by-step -step education or training, but it is a, an organic or holistic system. That is to say, the training of um, sila, or for want of a better word, morality, then um, the training of the heart and the training of understanding is supportive or is standing behind it. So it's in that particular area of life, the, the sila 
education takes precedence or is in the limelight, but is uh, backed by and supported by samadhi and the banya elements. In the training of the heart, the sila and the banya um, trainings are supportive. They're, they're standing behind it. They're informing it. They're enriching it. And similarly with the banya or the wisdom, the development, understanding, then the sila and the samadhi are also present. Um, to illustrate this, um, I, I would like to expand upon uh, the training of sila. A sila or morality in uh, in Buddhism is not conceived of a, a number of commandments. The <clears throat> the word the um, the Pali uh, formula which some of you may have um, chanted yourself or have heard um, chanted um, in the precept-taking ceremonies, um, like Panati Pata Verapmani Sikapatam Samatiyami, the first precept to uh, refrain from taking life, from harming and hurting others. The, the last two words, Sikapatam, so it's a, a pada, um, means um, a, a subject of or an area of education. Um, samadhiyami means to undertake. So um, translation is that uh, there is, I voluntarily undertake the education of my conduct with regard to other living beings. I, I, I undertake the education, the training to refrain from hurting and harming. So there's no um, reward and punishment. There's no carrot and stick here. It's important. It can only be sila if this training is undertaken voluntarily. So if you refrain from Hurting uh, others, killing others were well, wonderful. That's an admirable thing to do. But if you're only refraining from hurting others because you're afraid of um, the reaction of those around you or uh, perhaps of um, being punished or going to prison or even um, going to hell after you die, then it's not sila. That's not Buddhist morality because it lacks this essential feature of a commitment, voluntary commitment. So the, the wisdom element here is that you have to see the suffering for oneself and for others inherent in harming others and the value and the nobility and the beauty of refraining from harming and hurting. And similarly with the other precepts. Now, not only uh, do these precepts have to be taken on uh, voluntarily, but they also have uh, one's attitude towards them has to be protected from 
gaining ideas or any sense of self-aggrandizement or perhaps um, a, a desire or hope that by keeping uh, leading a moral life, then um, after death we go to a heaven realm. You know, that's uh, that's not um, uh, to say that the, the keeping the precepts will not lead to rebirth in the heaven realm, but that the desire for that result tarnishes precept the keeping of the precepts. There is also um, a very um, memorable discourse in which the Buddha said, if you keep precepts purely and on the basis of your moral purity, you consider yourself superior to someone who doesn't keep most moral precepts, your sila is thereby impure. So being proud of purity uh, is impurity. So the it's not um, so I don't don't want to do this because I'm afraid of punishment. Right? That's that's not what Buddhist morality is at all. It's a training, and the keeping of precepts requires um, a number of virtues that need to be cultivated on a regular and consistent basis. The most obvious, I think, um, is that of mindfulness. And I don't think that it can be stressed or emphasized enough um, that you can't just be aware. Just be aware. You can't. It's not possible. You have to be um, aware of something. You have to be mindful of something. And the degree to which you clarify your um, object of mindfulness or the, um, the skill with which you make use of what I would call pegs for mindfulness, you know, are the guarantee of success, both on the moral um, plane and in the more uh, subtle internal um, levels, planes of, of the practice. So how do you, you know, in this busy, overwhelming world, um, sensual overload world where there's something crying out, calling out, pleading for your attention all the time, and where the external features of your world which are encouraging you to live well and wisely and kindly are far exceeded by those things that are encouraging you in every possible way to live unwisely and heedlessly. How do you um, establish that sense of awakeness, uh, awareness, presence of mind, clarity of mind, good judgment? And initially, the recollection of precepts. Um, is a, a most valuable tool. So in any kind of social situation, 
making a clear determination that uh, whatever happens, I won't lie, I won't um, cheat, I won't exaggerate, I won't um, conceal, I won't speak harshly, I won't speak divisively, I won't try to set people against each other. I won't gossip about things which drain people of their goodness and energy and stimulate all that's um, dark and, and mean in their minds. And so by making a firm determination in that way, it's not that the de determination in itself is effective, but it establishes a standard. It establishes an aspiration and a channel for your mind. And if it's right there in the forefront of your mind, then in the daily life, it's con you're constantly recollecting it. You're coming back to yourself. You're coming back to the present moment again and again in a very um, effective way through mindfulness of precepts. So it's not that um, Buddhist morality is the precursor to meditation, um, but it is in itself um, a form of uh, spiritual development. And we learn so many things by keeping the precepts. Um, the, I think it's sobering, um, quite frightening, actually, when we start to be very honest about how honest we are in our um, speech, how often um, we, we perhaps we don't, we like to think ourselves as basically honest person, don't we? But then the number of times we compromise on the truth of our statements because we're embarrassed, because we, we want people to look at us well, we don't want people to look down on us or to lose their respect for us. Um, we, or we want something from somebody. I'm afraid if we tell the truth, we won't get that thing that we want, whether it's a material thing or some kind of uh, mental um, reinforcement. The, the effort uh, to be completely truthful um, is a very um, intense, purifying practice. And we notice that, um, you know, the <clears throat> kind of frustration that lay Buddhists know now, oh, I don't have time to meditate, you know, there's just so much going on in my life. Um, that, that's really beside the point. Now, on, on, this, uh, on this topic, I, I would like to suggest that a good framework for understanding um, this Buddhist education is um, one um, expressed, understood in terms of the framework of what we call the four right efforts. So that's one uh, factor of the Eightfold Noble Path. In the threefold abbreviation, it's uh, it's it's uh, considered to lie within the category of the training of the heart. And there are four elements. The first is the effort to protect 
the mind from unwholesome, negative, toxic mental states. So that needs a, um, a vigilance, a heedfulness, a, a clarity, a precision of mind in every situation. But we're all, it's almost impossible that we're going to be completely successful um, with that effort. So we also have to uh, be ready and to um, be committed to strategies of reducing and eliminating these negative toxic metals, mental states that have already arisen. Then we also put effort into cultivating, creating all those um, positive, noble, uplifting um, mental states that have not yet arisen in our hearts. And lastly, to cherish, to care for, and to further develop all those positive mental states which have already arisen. Now, I, I would suggest that if you look um, at your life, um, whether it's a very busy life or an extremely busy life, um, that it is still possible, um, whatever your circumstances, wherever you are, wherever you're with, um, to put one of those four kinds of effort into place where at any time, at every time. You're, you're going into um, a meeting and there's um, perhaps one particular uh, person going to be there, a board member or a colleague or a friend or, or an acquaintance, and it's someone who you find really obnoxious, a really irritating uh, person. And um, the, the, um, the natural kind of feeling that arises, oh, no. Uh, today I've got to go into a meeting and I've got to sit through so-and-so and put up with the things he or she says and does and you just feel drained and depressed and fed up before you even get into the room. But with this attitude, you say, okay, what's my practice today? You know, what, what, are, what usually happens in this kind of situation? Well, I get irritated by this irritating person. That's what happens. Um, and so you say, well, my intention today, my spiritual practice today is um, to uh, protect my mind and not allow myself to be irritated by an irritating per this irritating person. Because it's not um, fixed and inevitable. Now, in the physical um, sphere, if um, a, a totally immoral or amoral monster uh, was to put, a you know, human being, I'm speaking figuratively here, was to put his hand into a fire, you know, his hand would burn. Um, if any of you were to put your hand into the fire, it would burn. If a fully enlightened um, Buddhist master was to put his hand in fire, it would burn, um, because this is 
uh, the nature the nature of fire, the nature of human skin, it's like this. And so we could say that um, whenever um, the human hand comes into contact with flame, it will burn. But we can't say that whenever the human mind comes into the presence of uh, or into an irritating person, it becomes irritated. Um, it's not fixed, is it? Um, we can see this simple matter of observation that the degree to which we become irritated or angry or jealous or anxious or whatever is not fixed. It's not at uh, the same level of intensity every time. There are so many other factors which come into play. We might uh, one day we might be in a really good mood for some reason, and the person perhaps seems a little bit comical, or you know we just don't worry about it too much because we're in such a good mood. On another day, uh, we might be in a really bad mood or feel really insecure. Someone's just um, uh, criticized us unfairly or um, demeaned us in some way, and so we're already very sensitive. And this time, this person's words are especially irritating. And then we notice that, that just as our own response varies through um, the, the influence of various causes and conditions, then different people have different reactions. And that um, some people can be in the presence of this but not be uh, irritated by them at all. We find them quite kind of oh, lovable, eccentric. Here he goes again, you know, isn't he cute when he starts behaving like that? So, a lot of Buddhist practice in this way is, is observation, learning to observe what's going on and what's going on in your, in your heart and to see that there's no fixed connection between an external trigger and an internal mental state. Um, these things are um, conditions. They're not the cause. Cause of any human suffering always lies with ignorance of the way things are and its attendant craving, craving to get, to have, to become, craving to get rid of. So we can see this in our daily lives and we say, oh, uh, you look sad, what's wrong? Oh, today so-and-so has just made me so upset or I'm so hurt by what somebody said. Somebody um, abused me. Um, or I, I, today I, I met someone who showed um, racial prejudice towards me or, or so on. And so this is why um, I feel this way. But in actual fact, that's not the case. I mean, though, that was a condition. It was something which um, invited anger, invited hurt, invited fear invited anxiety but there has to be uh, you have to receive the invitation uh, there has to be something coming from you um, together with the external trigger so so this is not a teaching saying it's all inside you know you just make your heart peaceful and calm and wise and everything will be all right no it's recognizing um, the the influence of external conditions and being able to 
let go of any negative reaction doesn't mean that it doesn't uh, that that's all right. If somebody is to um, to treat you um, badly just because you have a a black skin or a, a, a yellow skin or a white skin or a pink skin, um, your first job is not to not to suffer because of that. But secondly, next thing is you need to report that person or you need to do something about it. So equanimity is not the goal, but it's the path. Wise action, uh, which leads to this sustainable happiness and welfare for self and others, always um, springs from, grows from equanimity. And we don't have this idea of righteous indignation or you have to uh, hold on to your anger, otherwise you just uh, don't want to do anything. Uh, I think that's a mistaken idea and, and uh, leads to a lot of um, unnecessary um, confusion and suffering. But the, the, the mind which is equanimous and bright and clear and alert is the mind that has a very um, clear and unbiased um, discrimination of what should be done right now, what needs to uh, what needs to be left for a while, what should be spoken, what should be left unspoken, what should be uh, said and done, not said and done. The mind um, which is free from um, anger and prejudice of any kind is the mind which is ready to act in the best possible fashion. The angry mind is a coarse, one-sided mind which buys into this whole idea of us and them, um, the the aggressive and the uh, the aggressed, the um, the right and the wrong, the good and the bad, and so on, and just make tends to make things worse. And um, what the value of it is just for a while, you just feel good at letting off steam. That's that's about the extent of it. So. Um, Going back to this example now, um, these four right efforts, you know, are based upon this idea that there is nothing fixed. Uh, there is nothing, there is no mental state which is um, part of or expresses who you are. And one way I like to talk about the mind and the body um, is to say that in Buddhist understanding, there are no nouns. There are only verbs. Everything's a verb. Even the mind is, seeing the mind is a verb rather than a noun. There's, there are things that are rising, passing away according to causes and conditions. Um, and so, um, for that reason, um, we have to be constantly, uh, awakening and brightening the mind and clarifying the mind and strengthening the mind because even though right now there there may not be coarse um, negative mental states we can't guarantee the future the only the stream entry one who's re realized the first level of enlightenment who can guarantee um, their their mind is going to be uh, free of uh, negative mental states independent of circumstance. 
And any student of history uh, will have observed how the, um, the once the rules um, are suspended and all, a lot of the things that um, would earn you life imprisonment or a long period of incarceration in peacetime can earn you medals in wartime um, when the external supports for uh, wise and kind living are, are removed. Many people who um, in peacetime would have lived a completely normal and conventionally moral life become um, awful, um, nasty um, people. And when things change, um, then unless we have this inner discipline and inner training, we just get swept away uh, by that. And um, my uh, one of my best friends um, married my sister, and uh, we used to play soccer together and close together. And and uh, he was uh, at school school. He was always uh, greatly inspired by Mahatma Gandhi. So I, um, after I, I left home and I didn't see him for a number of years. So I, after I'd been in Thailand for some six years, I returned to England for a visit. By this time, my sister and her husband had two children. And we were sitting around and I said, um, are you still you're inspired by Mahatma Gandhi and, and uh, Ahimsa and the nonviolence movement as much as you used to be? And he said, oh, yes, absolutely. But if anybody came near my kids, I'd kill them. You know? <laughs> um, so, you know, this, this is it. You know, we, we always have these um, exceptions. And, you know, there are certain circumstances where, yeah, we're not really sure. Um, and, you know, in a time of famine, in a time of civil war, civil, you know, when you felt um, unsafe, your loved ones were unsafe, and said, everything can change. So, but although that kind of extreme situation may not hope, hope that does not um, uh, appear in your lives, the point I'm trying to make is that this eff effort, this inner discipline, and this skill, understanding the way of the mind and developing techniques and methods to protect the mind from the arising of mental, uh, uh, toxic mental states is fundamental to this Buddhist training and that the, um, the effort and the techniques in the discipline of learning how to eradicate those that have arisen. This is, this is what it's all about. A very uh, simple, uh, straightforward example. Um, one of the antidotes for anger and, and, and aggression is, is loving kindness. And, and, and people can get a little bit uh, sort of discouraged with this. You know, yeah, it's, it's all right to have, you know, you feel loving kindness for all sentient beings, all the universe. You know, and I, we all, I, I, so I love everybody, you know, except for, him, you know, <laughs> except for, and it's usually someone in the same house. Uh, <laughs> that's the problem. 
And or you know, you meet somebody and you say, Yeah, I know you're supposed to have metta and loving kindness, but this guy is just so obnoxious, you know, I just can't do it. I just you know, the very thought of wishing him happiness, you know, it's just like you know, he's already got all this stuff and I give him happiness as well, you know, it's it's not fair. So um but the the point about metta or loving kindness um is that we wish people well. So be specific about it. So if someone is really selfish and self-centered, egotistical, then what can you wish them? You can wish them, may they be free of selfishness. May they know the happiness of putting other people first. Um, May they transcend this narrow, miserable, Attitude that they carry around with them all day. So, uh, you've, you've changed your, you, you, it's not that you're sort of living in this, um, uh, sort of, uh, delusion, you know, or, uh, love everyone, you know, um, cause you don't and you know it, but, <laughs> and that's all right. I mean, it's completely all right. But what you can do is that I'm not going to dwell in aversion for this person because it's hurting me more than it's hurting them. Um, and by just saying, yes, may they be free um, of that um, habit, of that per- kind of personality. May they, may they know the, uh, the happiness of freedom from that. And I think that's something that's very practical and applicable in, in any... So it, it has, you have to start off you know, with what, what really works rather than, you know, what you think should, you know, a Buddhist or a meditator should be. You know, don't get into that. I should be. I should. You know, med- um, Buddhists get ill, you know, and oh, I should be able to deal with this better than I can or to get sort of fearful and anxious and think I shouldn't be like this. I should be peaceful and calm or, um, you know, uh, Oh, it hurts. You know, I'd like pain medication, but that would be sort of letting the side down because meditators have to be tough and deal with, um, pain. So this isn't kind of some kind of, uh, macho, um, <laughs> show for other people. Um, you don't have to be anything very special. You should be honest with yourself, um, and learn from experience. So, like in daily life, you're, as I was um, saying the other day, like walking through an airport or on a busy road, just do this um, loving kindness meditation, but very, very specific. Um, you see someone who looks really kind of, you know, tense, and may they be free from stress and tension. Um, you see someone who's very overweight, say, may they be free of any suffering because of their weight. And, and try to think up something kind and specific for people that pass by. And rather than feeling stressed out, you can really feel um, very, very good and peaceful. So taking one step at a time. And, and so just as uh, constant make, making this effort, we can't, we're not safe from negative mental states. It's easier for the mind to go down, downstream than it is to go upstream. Um, but also, there, there is no beautiful, noble mental state which cannot be cultivated within your heart. This is a teaching of the Buddha. You know, sometimes we put up, 
um, spiritual teachers on a pedestal. They're so wonderful and peaceful and holy and wise. But these these teachers are just uh, vessels. Now, when you say, "Oh, I have so much for so much devotion," uh, say or inspiration with, let's say, the Dalai Lama, for instance, I said, "But what is it really? You know, what's really going on there?" What we're really inspired with um, are the compassion, kindness, forgiveness, integrity, and so on that we see within him. He's someone who embodies these qualities, makes them real to us, um, and and inspires it. We're inspired by those qualities which we see within him, rather than the Dalai Lama himself. And same with any teacher. And there's not one single uh, virtuous quality um, embodied by the Dalai Lama or by any great teacher which cannot appear and grow and thrive um, within any one of us, man or woman, young or old. And so we have this effort to cultivate the good and the kind and, uh, um, <clears throat> and to cultivate patience and Kindness and compassion and mindfulness and, and inner peace. Um, it's difficult, very difficult, but um, it's worth it. I don't know of any great monk or nun, any great teacher who would look back on a lifetime of effort and say, Oh, what a waste of time. I wish I hadn't, it wasn't, you know, what a disappointment. Um, far from it. Um, I think uh, it's very few people uh, who, you know, who, who don't experience that sometime in, in their career, but uh, spiritual teachers don't. Yeah, every single breath, every single um, drop of sweat was worth it um, because you can see how it truly leads to one's own welfare and happiness and also the ability to create and stimulate um, happiness and welfare in others. Uh, sustainable basis. So these beautiful qualities are risen, and we can't take them for granted, um, because if we don't look after them, they can disappear. And there's so many um, uh, monks, nuns, meditators, put a lot of effort, received some fruit from their practice, rested on their laurels, and now I've got it, now I've got it sorted out, I'm beyond this, I've transcended that, everything's wonderful, and they just little by little, drop by drop, disappears, and they wake up one day and say, how did I get here? Where did that all disappear to? Um, and it's very common in, in spiritual life. Overestimation of one's attainment and lack of interest and commitment to caring for and furthering one's spiritual attainments. These are um, perpetual themes in, in Buddhist history and I'm sure in the history of any spiritual tradition. The Buddha himself um, asked about his practice um, directly prior to his enlightenment. Um, said there were two uh, qualities uh, which uh, he he felt were most instrumental in his enlightenment. One was unremitting 
steady practice in all postures. And secondly, uh, perhaps surprisingly, discontent. Discontent with his, the attainments, his realizations that, that uh, he was already enjoying. So the Buddha, you know, without a teacher, without a, like a framework, an external framework, without anyone encouraging him, still had within him this, this uh, pushing onwards and onwards and onwards, never taking anything for granted. So the, these are um, the, some of the reflections that I, I would like to share with you today. And the, the ability um, to be mindful, to be aware and to be awake, and to be wise in daily life is greatly supported, enhanced by daily meditation practice, but also putting forth effort in every posture and every situation. And when we do have time to meditate, then meditate. And you don't have to do it for, uh, you know, it's not a big thing. Uh, I, just before, uh, during the meditation, I was saying, look at it as enjoyment. So, you know, you say, oh, I'm going to go and meditate for half an hour, you know, I'm going to concentrate on my, it's like kind of like a bit of a burden, you know, you're already sort of shy or shan't, I could do something else. Maybe I'll just go and lie down or um, go and send a message to somebody. Um, <laughs> but uh, if you just change, this this very sort of change and say, uh, look on meditation as enjoying your breath. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm just going to go into my room for 10 minutes and just enjoy my breath for a few minutes. That's quite, yeah, that's quite a good feeling, isn't it? You know, and, uh, oh, where sounds like, oh, he's just enjoying his breath for a few minutes. He'll be back, you know. So turn off your communication devices. I have times of the day when you're incommunicado. I think this is a, a word which we need to bring up and revive, uh, um, uphold, incommunicado. I think that would be a really good sort of Latin phrase. I mean, that's put up on, <coughs> carved into the stone here somewhere. So um, having times when no one can get in touch with you and you're just in touch with yourself. And, whether, and in meditation, what are you doing? You're putting forth these four efforts. It's not anything... Um, that you're enjoying it in order to enjoy the breath. You have to be skillful in preventing hindrances from taking over your mind. You have to know how to deal with hindrances that have arisen, consciously bringing up what we call the enlightenment factors uh, of meditation or the jhana factors, all these technical terms, basically bringing up all that's wholesome and, and beautiful. And when those things are starting to arise, taking care of them, taking them further and further. So daily life and, and um, meditation, this is just different sides of the same coin. It's just one thing. It's a seamless uh, practice uh, leading from darkness to light and from bondage to liberation. So thank you for your attention. So, um, I don't know if you if you need to um, anyone who needs to stretch their legs. Otherwise, I'm happy to 
uh, answer any questions or listen to anyone's um, <laughs> ideas. Yeah. Um, I have a daughter who's about to be four, and um, one thing we've incorporated into our morning routine and evening routine is one-minute meditations. Um, and so what I've asked her to do is just sit still and try to be quiet for one minute, which is difficult. <laughs> but is there anything, I, what, one thing I'm, one idea I'm thinking with is for her to try and listen to her heartbeat or, or something to focus on. Do you have any suggestions for a three-year-old? Which I Easy. am also sometimes confused. <laughs> I think I think for small children, the the uh, meditations that immediately engage the emotions um, are very good, and loving kindness meditation and can be you can do that even with a small child for longer than a minute, um, and just encourage them to think of their loved ones, uh, mummy and daddy, and just think of um, uh, close your eyes and think of the, your mummy's face smiling and happy. You think, may, may mommy be happy, and think of daddy, and think of him smiling, think of daddy be happy. And then um, you, can, you can be guiding a little, okay, let's, um, let's spread loving kindness um, to mommy, to daddy, and to grandparents, and to friends, and then to all the people in Palo Alto, or all the people in California, and all the people. And, and you know, as you get older, you can do it more, and then you can do, you know, all the uh, all the rabbits, all the puppies, all the all the polar bears, and you know, and you can be a little bit creative. But uh, although the, you know, whatever sending this kind of loving kindness can vary in its object, it's just developing this ability to to send this sense of um, uh, wish, well wishing to others. I think with small children, you know, not really expecting too much kind of silence. But uh, sustaining uh, a positive, uplifting emotion through um, sort of reinforcing every few seconds or few minutes when um, when the child starts to to waver and become distracted, and seeing as the you know as the child gets older, how much you know if it makes it too long and the child starts dislike it, then that's not you know just you know obviously with any kind of teaching you want the person to feel. It wasn't quite long enough, you know. Like it's doing a bit longer. Another uh, you know, a technique um, in the, in the, the secular mindfulness um, groups in England. One of I don't know in, in the states whether they, they, they use this technique. It's rather nice. is to use the breathing, but to to use your finger. And so breathe in, and you reach the top of the in breath, and you breathe out. Breathe in, and then end it at the top of the finger, and breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. So, so you synchronize the breath with the movement. So it's something to do as well. That's quite, I think that's a nice one. Often uh, when we talk about mindfulness, uh, the word translates uh, from the Buddhist to the English. Not an exact translation. Often people think of thought patterns. Training the brain, but 
Well, um, sati, this is uh, the term sati, um, means recollection. And in its particular function or expression um, is dependent upon the object of, of um, sati. So if the object is in the past, you know, it, it would be um, probably most um, effectively translated as memory or just ordinary recollection. You, know, you said, well, what did we talk about just now when we were having a cup of tea? And you bring that to mind. That's, that's sati. That's recollection. And, and, um, the Venerable Ananda was the monk declared by the Buddha to be foremost in sati, which is surprising in that he wasn't an arahant. He wasn't a fully enlightened. He was a, a stream enterer at the time of his death. Um, but he was given this title as being foremost in sati because he was the one who memorized and could recollect all of the discourses of the Buddha. So that, that function of, of sati is uh, prominent in the, uh, in the Pali discourses. But when the object, when the, uh, when the object is present in the present moment, then sati means not forgetting. This is a this is a tip. If you when you when a good way of trying to understand these technical terms is to look at what they're not or the opposite of them. So so this is why mindfulness in the eightfold path is included in the training of the heart rather than the training of wisdom. It's not a wisdom fac, uh, faculty. It's 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 a heart faculty. So if you're with your breath and you're not forgetting your breath, then you're mindful of your breath. So whatever you, you take as an object and you're able to sustain attention, not, not forget it, then you're being mindful of it. Now, mindfulness works in conjunction with another mental factor, which is called sampajanya, usually translated as clear comprehension. Um, and this is um, a one kind is a preliminary um, form of wisdom. So if, if you're meditating on your breath, say, what, what you're actually doing is you're sustaining mindfulness on your breath. You get distracted. You lose something. You've forgotten the breath. After a while, you, oh, what's happening? This isn't, this isn't my breath. This is not leading anywhere. This is a waste of time. That's Sampajanya. See, this recognition that this, what I'm doing right now, i.e. thinking, fantasizing, um, is not what I set out to do. Um, it's a departure from, it's a deviation from. Um, and through that act of mindfulness, you reestablish um, attention. This is like vitaka. You put the mind on the object again, and you reestablish mindfulness. So you can, you can, um, be mind, mindful of a particular body a part or a function of the body, the breath. Um, you train yourself to be mindful of feeling because there's always, um, a feeling in every moment of consciousness, either pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. And we seek to bring that to mind. 
and to um, be mindful of, of feeling. So we tend to um, lose focus in the presence of neutral feeling because it feels like nothing's going on. Uh, we, we attach to pleasant feeling, we push away unpleasant feeling because we're not aware of feeling as feeling. And uh, similarly with mental states and um, hindrances of the mind, which I've been speaking of um, uh, to a certain degree already, one of the teachings which we can easily overlook because it seems so straightforward, the Buddha says, recognizing a hindrance as a hindrance. You know, what, what does that really mean? I have an analogy. Is, um, you know, if you uh, let's imagine someone who was born into a slum, a terrible, horrible environment, um, and never had the opportunity to go anywhere or ever known was life in a slum. And then one day, um, some kind person takes first out of the slum, out of the city, up to a mountain, top of a mountain, trees, breeze, fresh air. And what happens? The, the, the boy, the girl thinks, wow, where I live, where I live, that's a really nasty, dirty, smelly place. And prior to that, um, even though living in that environment, there'd been no sense of that because there'd been nothing to compare it to. But um, through that um, uh, first-hand direct experience of something that transcends that, in a sense, oh, that's so dirty, that's so um, smelly, that's so disgusting. And so although you know, we, we hear that... Um, uh, this kind of desire, this kind of aversion, this, this on these are hindrances. We don't, we can grasp that intellectually, but we don't feel it. And that's why it's so important to, to develop a meditation where at least for a short while, you have an experience of a mind which transcends hindrances. And you say, Oh, this is peace. And that mental state that I, you know, that I indulge in and I, it's really unpeaceful. That's really toxic. That really pulls me down. And, and before you never realize, you know, it's just, this is who I am. I'm like this. You know, this is who I am. You say, no, it's not. So, you know, one of the reasons why I, this whole kind of uh, distinction or division or argument about this is samatha, this is vipassana, you know, this is just this and this is that. Um, I don't really think it, you know, it's that useful because. Um, if you're doing a pure focusing technique, um, let's say on the breath, for instance, the experience of, of, of peace, of samadhi, transforms your whole understanding of yourself and your role in the world and your desires and aspirations. Uh, your whole value system can change. So, um, you know, to say, well, that's not really developing wisdom. You know, it's, it's not looking at arising and passing away. It's not a vipassana technique as though it's something inferior. I mean, I don't think that really, um, it's a very helpful way of looking at things. You know, say, so, well, what's the effect on your life? If experience, if you can digest and reflect skillfully upon, upon the experiences in meditation, um, you, you can learn something that, that, um, then is expressed in your daily life. 
Um, and the more you are mindful, then the easier it becomes. And the more um, you see that, yeah, it's true. Like you've been told since a kid, real happiness lies within. You don't, you know, we pay lip service to all this stuff, you know. But when it comes to the crunch, uh, we don't really believe it. Um, you know, unless you've experienced this inner happiness, you don't really believe it. Um, that's why it's so important to 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 develop this practice internally. Um, in in most Asian languages, um, certainly in uh, in Pali, Sanskrit, and in Thai, Chinese, as far as I know, um, we just have one word: is jit or jitta. Um, and in the in the Western languages, then we have this. Um, division into the heart and the head. And, you know, for a long time, it was a major headache or heartache for <laughs> translators, you know, knowing how to translate this term. Because when you translate the jit, jitta as the mind, then, then people tend to take the cognitive intellectual aspect and overlook the emotional aspect. And when you translate it as the heart, um, then people assume that you're excluding the intellectual um, side. Um, so there's never really any, been any resolution, but a convention has been adopted that we use the mind. But that includes everything that uh, also comes under the heart in, um, in the English language or in most uh, Western languages. But I, I think that it, um, the, there is nevertheless um, value in making that kind of distinction when you understand it's you know it's a conventional um, distinction and certainly um, we I think one one way of talking about meditation practice is that it provides a bridge between the mind and the heart as those things are, are, are um, generally understood in Western culture so if, um, and, and as I mentioned just now, it, it makes real, um, the, uh, the value of, of the training. And Western Buddhism in particular has been, you know, been plagued by this, uh, over intellectual approach. I mean, because Buddhist teachings are just so emotionally satisfied, uh, intellectually, um, satisfying. Um, that often people can uh, just stop there. But the, the Buddha spoke about wisdom as being uh, one of the um, most well-known of his um, presentations, the subject of wisdom, is that there are three levels or three kinds of wisdom. So the first is uh, wisdom of um, accurate, beneficial information. Okay, you. Um, Going back to the to the example of the fire, somebody tells you, you know, if you put your hand in the fire, it burns, um, and you remember that. And on the basis of that, 
um, information, you don't put your hand in front. So that's, that's the first level of wisdom. You hear teachings um, from the uh, Lord Buddha and great teachers. You remember them, and they start to inform how you live your life, uh, your values, and so on, your decisions about um, uh, what and, and how you spend your time. So this is uh, one level of wisdom. Second level of wisdom um, is taking information from here and from there and integrating it and reflecting on it and taking it further. So the, these first two kinds of wisdom are what, you know, what um, on basis of most education systems. The third kind of wisdom is called Bhavanamaya uh, Panya. This is the, the wisdom that comes through meditation and when uh, the ability to take the mind beyond the thought world. Um, so, and having um, a new dimension of experience, uh, a perspective on thinking. Um, and when the mind stops thinking, um, there, but is at the same time um, intensely bright, alert, alive, then a new kind of wisdom, and a wisdom which um, affects radical changes in your life, um, appears. So we can hear a Buddhist monk says, look, um, we're all going to be separated from everyone we love. Okay, I don't think anyone can, can quarrel with that, can they? Um, uh, think of anyone you either, uh, you're going to die before they do or they're going to die before you do. There's no other alternative. Oh, well, I guess you could die together in a plane crash or something, but let's not go into that. Um, but you got my, you got the gist. Um, so yeah, that's true. Oh yeah, well, that's really true, you know. But then, you know, you are bereaved for some, you, you, or you do experience some awful separation. And the question is, um, what value to you is that knowledge? Is that assent, that intellectual acceptance? Yes, that's true. Um, not very much, I think we would all agree. Um, and this, and for, for that reason, this we could say, yeah, it's still in your head, it's just in your brain, it's just a thought, a perception, but it hasn't been fully digested and fully experienced and understood. And this is, so we can say it has to engage both the head and the heart, so we can say that. Um, and um, my my view, and my, I, I would suggest that meditation you know, is the way uh, to effect that integration and inward digestion of these simple truths of life, which we we hear and we and we think we know, but really it's very superficial and it doesn't really reach um, the deepest uh, parts of our life. I think since it's already. Eight forty. If there's no question, I'd like to. So, um, on behalf of Thai Student Association at Stanford, I would like to um, sincerely thank Venerable Ajahn Zero for sparing your time to come and visit us at Stanford and taking your time to teach at Tamat. Uh, we believe that we would like to. Um, we of course will teach or uh, we'll 
learn what you have taught us and then make more efforts to um, be aware of the fact that it could affect our mind. Um, we try to learn to let go better and we try to, um, of course, to eradicate any negative toxicity in our mind. Thank you so much. Um, before we all go, this is rather kind of abrupt, I, I just want to tell you one of my favorite stories. Um, <laughs> it's just a very short story, but it's one I like a lot. So this is Monk, and he's uh, walking, uh, and he's walking towards the mountain, as most monks do. And uh, he, he lost his way, as uh, well, monks also do sometimes. And there was an old lady sitting by the side of the road, and she's... Uh, Doing some, some work or other. And he says, Grandmother, Grandmother, excuse me. Um, how, how long will it take me to get to the mountain? And she's just carrying on what she's doing. Pays no attention. And he says, Grandmother, Grandmother, could you tell me how long it will take me to get? She's, and, and being a Buddhist monk, you said three times. So you did, uh, <laughs> Grandmother, Grandmother, excuse me. Uh, how long will it take? And she, so he walks on, he just assumes she's deaf or didn't. And she's a few meters down the road and she says, three or four days. And he looks back and he said, grandmother, why, why didn't you reply when I asked you? So, well, I had to see how fast you were walking and how sincere you were before I could answer. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.